You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. One. All right, Rhett, uh, open-ended question. Take this in whatever direction you'd like, but when you think back to your time growing up here in the, the Metroplex, memories, interests, experiences, hobbies, Whatever. What are some of the things that stand out to you? Mm. You know, I really loved taking my guitar to like arts festivals in high school. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to figure out in fifth grade that uh, that I would do better in like a private school setting, and I wound up talking my way into St. Mark's School of Texas and convincing my sweet little widowed grandma to use her uh, Air Force pension to put me through St. Mark's. And it was a great school. And, um, you know, like every school, there was always, there's always jocks and there's always, you know, me with the nerds over here. But um, as it went, it just became this really cool thing where I would, I figured out music was the thing that I loved to do. And I would drag my guitar around and, and I would make up these songs that were just really like an excuse to write poetry, but not be like a poet type of, you know, not to seem overly uh, uh, pompous about it. So, yeah, so I guess I really love sitting at the base of a tree, not noticing that it was 106 degrees, because now that I no longer live in Texas, you know, I, now it seems insane that people would do that. But at the time, I didn't care. What did I care? We were all sweating to death. It was pretty, pretty great. So... I went to to St. Mark's as well uh, for four years. I didn't. I ended up graduating from Green Hill, but I'm curious. Uh, and there might be because they have some some teachers who had some pretty long tenures. Were do you remember any particular teacher who had an influence on you? Maybe more than more than others. Well, you talked about teachers with long tenures, and uh, I immediately thought about J.J. Connolly, who. Uh, Ooh, he was a he was a hard nosed old bird. He was uh yeah he was tough. Um, I still stay in touch with a couple of my teachers from that school. John Beal uh, just finally retired from where he was running um, a boys' school up in in New York City, and then Jay Jennings um, was my eighth grade English teacher, and he's somebody that I really think about when I think back on falling in love with writing and creative writing and. He was just he was just out of uh, school himself, and he used to come to school to St. Mark's on a motorcycle. And then um, about 10 years after I graduated from high school, the 97s were doing the press for um, uh, maybe our second Electra record. And I looked at my itinerary one day, and it said, New York Magazine, Jay Jennings. And I thought, there's no way that's my eighth grade English teacher. And sure enough, he was living in New York City and writing um, for magazines and we reconnected then. And that was, geez, that was 20 years ago. So we, um, yeah, I'm still really close with, uh, with both of those guys. I, you know, that's people that, that influence the lives of kids like that by, by devoting their lives to teaching and sharing their joy and their passion 
for you know the different things that they care about in terms of academics. I just think that's such a noble thing. I really am so grateful that people devote their lives to that. So you mentioned in around fifth grade, that's when you made the switch to St. Mark's and uh, you, you kind of recognize the, you know, maybe an interest in music. What, what, what pushed you down that path? What, what, you know, what led you to just even giving music a try in the first place or what interested you about it? Um, my folks took me to um, uh, a dinner theater which at the time seemed like such an old timey weird thing. And now I make, you know, I do a lot of solo acoustic gigs in the city wineries around the world or the Kessler theater type of thing. That's not straight up dinner theater, but that idea of like, you know, fancier seated. Um, they took me to a dinner theater to see the Kingston trio. And I remember, and this is like a super square folk music act, but I really loved them. And I really loved the, the way that, um, they they were sort of an erudition. They liked to talk between songs and and um, but then at the same time they would play these songs like Zombie Jamboree where they were kind of rocking out, even though it was just an acoustic guitar and a banjo and you know, um, and something about that and as, as an eight year old, it just it, what it did was it presented that as like that's an option, you know, because I saw my dad being an attorney and I knew I didn't want to do that. But, um, you know, the other jobs that seemed like available to me at the time, you know, it was what firefighter, pretty cool, but scary. Anyway, that when that became an option, it's sort of it, I could never shake that as the best option. OK, so you you go to St. Mark's and I, I think, Red, I, I read that, you know, and you maybe kind of alluded to the different the different groups and, and whatnot that. I guess socially it wasn't always smooth sailing uh, at St. Mark's and, and, and perhaps, you know, maybe bullying was, was more of a thing. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious, how did that experience impact you and, and what are some of the, the takeaways that, that have made you maybe stronger to this day, if you don't mind me asking? Man, I don't think anybody uh, has smooth sailing. I think even, boy, I think back on my year at St. Mark's, the couple of kids that I thought, um, were like the most, uh, probably had it the easiest because they were the most popular. They were captain of the football team type of guys. I think back on them. And as we grew up and became adults, you know, I learned things about their lives. It made me realize, oh my gosh, these guys didn't have it easy at all. You know, there's stuff at home going on. And I think, I think it's important to remember, and I try to impart this to my kids. You don't know what other people have going on. So for me, when when I would encounter, you know, the inevitable bullying, especially, you know, I'm a sensitive kid. I had long eyelashes. I liked British, you know, songwriter music in Dallas, 1980s. So, yeah, of course, I'm going to run up against the uh, middle linebackers of the world. But, um, you know, it's it's just what it is. Uh, it's 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 like anything. It's a numbers game. If um if there's 10 dudes that would love to kick my ass because of my eyelashes, there's going to be not only 10 other dudes that are kindred spirits where we can just like laugh about, you know, how much better our lives maybe are going to be in the future or whatever, whatever story you tell yourself at the time. But there's also going to be, you know, 10 girls that think that the, the sensitive dude with long eyelashes, that's, that's the way to go. I mean, it's, it's just, if you can survive it, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of joy to be found amidst the turmoil of those years. 
okay, so and I appreciate you sharing that. I know uh, you know that that's that's we're reaching far back into the the memory banks there. Uh, who were were some of the musicians in addition to the Kingston Trio who you know whether it was early or, or as you were you know growing up that you loved? Like, is there anyone that that really stood out that to you this was like the band or this guy was the guy or gal? Sure, and, and and the Kingston Trio was really kind of random. I mean, that was my parents' music. They took me to see it, and even though I liked it, and I continue to this day to have really um, some real favorites in the Kingston Trio's catalog. It's not like that was what I connected to personally. Um, the probably what became the number one for me was David Bowie. Um, uh, in terms of like a big superstar that I was able to look at and and really find like this real depth in his writing, but also I just I felt like there was a lot going on. There was a, there was text and subtext, and there was just a lot of excitement um, on all levels, like intellectually and in terms of just like visceral rock and roll. Um, you know, but at the same time, like there's the there's the personal level and. Um, around the time I was falling in love with David Bowie, I got to go see him play on the Sirius Moonlight tour. Um, and the the girl that took me to see that play was my girlfriend's older sister, which was Lisa Loeb. And so here's this girl that's three years ahead of me at Hockaday, and she's doing, um, you know, all the talent shows, and she's starting to play gigs, and she's writing songs. And um, it was cool to look, you know, to look at Lisa as she was just ahead of me on this curve, and uh, just kind of follow her path and learn from her, and and uh, and we're we're still friends to this day. And I've been, you know, proud of how she's been able to like make a great career. And uh, and it's it's kind of sweet. So you know, you've got the macro of seeing David Bowie, the Uber star, and getting to go see him at Reunion Arena and watching him come off the stage to do his encore, and while people chanted his name, and he like smokes a cigarette and mops <laughs> his brow. And then I'm sitting next to Lisa Loeb, who just a few years later, really, would wind up being the first person to ever have a number one hit song without being signed to a major record label deal. And, and it's just, I don't know, it's, 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 a, it's a smaller world than you think it is when you're a kid, you know, because it seems like these people are magical. They know something I don't know. And then as you grow up, you sort of look around and go, these are just human beings, you know, and, and they're figuring out it as they go. And I could do this. All right. I want to spin off of both of those things, but first with the David Bowie have, and I know he's, he's since passed, but I always heard he was, you know, like a really good guy. Did you ever get a chance to meet him or, or interact with him in, in any way, shape or form? Man, I did not. And it's one of the great regrets of my life. I had uh, a number of, avenues where I was one step removed and I could have pushed it. You know, he lived not far from where I live in the Hudson Valley um, for the last few years of his life. We have a lot of friends in common. Obviously, he was a a big fan of Tim and the Polyphonic Spree. Uh, He was a big fan of the Pixies. You know, both of those bands are bands I'm close to friends with. And um, I did find out not long ago, after sort of living now with his regrets since he passed away, um, I just never reached out because I was afraid. What if he turns out to, what if he's a jerk? You know, what like then, then my number one favorite music in the world is ruined. And, and that's a stupid reason. And I know that now it was more out of fear, perhaps of rejection. I don't know, whatever. 
those fears that we all try and overcome our whole lives. So I never reached out, but I did find out a couple of years ago, unbeknownst to me when I was, there was about a year where I lived down by the World Trade Center in Manhattan, and I was playing um, every week or every other week at a club called The Fez, which was a basement venue uh, in the village. And he would, uh, he lived right on that block, and I knew that he every once in a while popped into that room, but I didn't know until after he'd passed away, um, I just found out in the last year, that he had come in halfway through one of my shows at the Fez and sat in a corner booth by himself and watched the whole last you know, 45 minutes or hour of my show and then snuck out during the middle of the final song. And um, that kind of blew my mind because I guess I'm, it made me simultaneously feel joy but also this great sadness like, what if I could have been friends with my idol? Because it's happened with other heroes of mine that I've gotten to meet and, and become friends with. And But he was number one. And, you know, whatever. It is what it is. I'm sad that I never got to hang out with him, but I'm grateful for his music. You said you, you have become friends with people that would maybe fit in that category. Is there one person that, that stands out more than others that, that you kind of pinch yourself about the relationship you've developed with, with that particular person? <laughs> That's a funny thing, because when somebody goes from being a hero to a friend, you have to kind of deal with them on a whole different level, like on a human being level. Like there's there's one, I'm wondering if I should even name, well, Robin Hitchcock is, is now somebody that I consider a friend. And there was a time, he's, he's like, um, I saw him play at Reunion Arena opening for R.E.M. in 1980-something, you know, Um and I fell in love with him at that show, had never heard of him, fell in love with him, followed him for years to the point where I would drive Murray from the 97s and I, or my sister and I, we would drive, you know, to adjacent states to go see him play in New Mexico and Arizona. Um, so I was a giant fan. And then um, we, our orbits collided and he appeared on a record I made in 2002 and um, I went to a emergency party at his backyard <laughs> in his North, North London home, uh, in 2003. And, uh, that was when that was the, the night that I sort of fell in love with and confessed my love to the woman to whom I'm now married for 18 years. Um, so Robin has been a friend for a long time, but you know, it's, it's funny because even though he was, you know, larger than life and untouchable when I was a teenager and now we're peers and friends, but I also get to sort of, you know, I get to see things that he does <laughs> that are not perfect. And and in a way, it's just like, well, what do you expect? He is a human being. Uh, you know, according to my kids, I'm apparently not perfect. I don't, I'm not sure <laughs> I believe it, but they will argue that. Uh, you mentioned Lisa Loeb and, you know, kind of unique. I know St. Mark's and Hockaday aren't. Uh, one school, but, you know, brother, sister schools to have two musicians around the same time come from uh, those schools. But I, I'm just curious, the what was the DFW music scene like for the people in y your age range, the, the, the Lisa Loeb, the, the Rhett Miller age range? Were, you, were there others uh, who you kind of could look to your right and look to your left and say, hey, we're all in this together? Uh, or was it maybe more bare than other parts of the country? Man, I don't know what it's like now. I, I do every once in a while go back to St. Mark's and play for the kids, and um, I don't have m my finger on the pulse of the like the, the really young music scene. I know for me at the time, 
I was always the kid in the room. Like there, um, my bass player Murray was the singer in uh, in a band called the Peyote Cowboys at the time, and and um, he was sort of my entree to the Dallas music scene and the punk rock scene, and um, and I, they were all older than me. They were all five to ten years older than me, and uh, and that was fine with me because they tended to look on me as like a little brother and they were sweet. You know, they let, they'd give me slots opening up at a time when I'm sure I wasn't probably good enough to justify it. But, um, I think they liked the novelty of me being the kid. Um, there were all, you know, there were always other people that came and went. Uh, one thing I noticed with music is that it, it's sort of, a it's a self-correcting problem. You know, the, this dream of music, um, it's uh, a lot of people come into the scene and realize pretty quickly how difficult it is, um, what a long slog it is, uh, the the low, low percentage of even with moderate success being able to like ever have any kind of security in this job. And, uh, and they make the intelligent decision to bow out gracefully before it's too late. Um, I took the, that option out of my... Uh, you know, I, 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 I took away all my safety nets when I was really young because I knew this is the only thing I ever wanted to do. And honestly, I think if you're really going to do it, that's probably the way to do it because you, then you just, you're, the hunger will drive you, the, the fear of failure, which I know fear is never a great motivator, but knowing that this is your only option, for, for me, that seemed like the way I had to do it, and it ended up working. Um, but, you know... Those young people that I grew up with now, a lot of them, you know, we, I talk about Tim DeLauter, you know, and uh, he and I were playing Tuesday Night Ladies Night at the Rhythm Room. And uh, when he had Tripping Daisy, they were just starting. And, and we've both now, um, we pay our mortgages and feed our kids with this crazy dream that has now become a decades-long reality. And that dream, a big part of it is is the old 97s. How did the band develop and form you, you reference Murray, uh, who's a, a part of the old 97s, but, but what do you remember about the, the origin story of the band? I guess. Murray was my mentor. Uh, my girlfriend, Jennifer was friends with his girlfriend, Jennifer, and they introduced us and he recorded my first demos. I think I just turned, I think I was 15 years old. Um, and he was just really generous. And really, that was what drew me to music uh, as, a, as a life, as like, a, these are my people. Um, when I realized that in this sort of community, that it really feels like that, like there's this kind of idea that, I mean, there's always squabbling and there's jealousy and envy inevitably and all this stuff. But the rising tide lifts all boats philosophy definitely seemed to hold sway in the music scene because we were all in this together and we were all starving and we were all, you know, scrapping for the opening slot for the, you know, the national touring band or whatever. So Murray was really good to me and really patient with me when I was just a little kid. And then he produced the record I made in high school. Uh, And then he visited me when I went off to Sarah Lawrence college, I got a full scholarship and he spent, you know, every weekend he was living in DC at the time. He spent every weekend driving up to New York and hanging out in my dorm room and talking me into dropping out and giving up my full scholarship, which to this day, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> and um, he's like, come on, let's just go back to Texas and we'll start a band. And so we went, we did it. We started the Sleepy Heroes, 
And then we just spent a few years really learning how to fail in a lot of ways. You know, it was the music industry was moved, transitioning from like hair metal and weird kind of soft rock into what would become like the grunge scene. And none of those felt like what we liked or what we were naturally inclined to do as musicians. So we tried all these different bands from Rats Exploding to, oh my God, I don't know, just we had these stupid band names too. Um, we, we tried all these different bands and finally just decided we couldn't take it. Um, we gave up our dream of, you know, tricking some major label into signing us. And we decided we would start a band that had no chance of being successful beyond the coffee shops of Dallas, Texas. And uh, it would be like a kind of a country band, a little folk, you know, acoustic guitars. He had an acoustic bass by that time. And that was what we were going to do. And it was going to take all the pressure off and we were going to enjoy music again. And of course, and I think there's a big lesson in this, when we took all the pressure off and stopped trying to reach exclusively for the brass ring and started trying to do something that felt honest, that's when it connected, and that's when we developed a big audience in Chicago, came back and developed a big audience in Dallas, and then wound up, you know, it just went from there. It's amazing hearing you talk about that, because when I think of, you know, my my path as a broadcaster, and I certainly don't have the the uh, parallel resume in my field that, that you've achieved in yours, but when I talk to kids, I always tell them that I didn't start to really grow until I stopped trying every half inning of a baseball game to create the perfect demo. You know, when I was in Great Falls, Montana and Midland, Michigan, the minute I would make a mistake in a half inning, because that's that's how these demos usually get sent out by, you know, half inning stretches. And I knew that, you know, gosh, I can't use the top of the fourth now or I can't use the bottom of the fourth. I would just... I was done. Like I, you know, I, I had to wait until the next half inning because I was in my own head. And then I finally just said, screw it. Uh, you know, if I'm doing 140 games, I'm, if I'm, if I'm not good enough over 140 games to find something, then I'm not good enough, but it's going to come. And, and I really didn't start growing, uh, and allowing myself to grow until I got that, that roadblock out of my head, I guess. Isn't it? I love hearing that story. Stuff like that is so fascinating to me. Um, isn't it funny, though? Because it's the thing that holds us back more than anything else. And we're always telling ourselves these stories like, oh, you know, what's holding me back is them or, you know, some system or the man or whatever. And, and finally, when you, and you can only usually recognize this, like, like you're saying, after the fact, you recognize the thing that had been holding you back is your own brain and your own ideas about, um, you know, what, what it means to be successful or what kind of pressure you're putting on yourself. And, and all it boils down to really in the end is fear. And, um, it's so nice when you can finally get past that and, and look back on it and laugh and say, thank God I lived through that and survived it and learned from it. I, you know, I think of the, the scene in the Shawshank Redemption, not that the, it's the same level of gravity, but when Andy Dufresne finally escapes and he stands up and he looks to the sky with the rain pouring down, he's, he's free. And I just like, that's how I felt in the booth. And, and our mutual friend, my mentor, Eric Nadell, uh, had a big role in, in leading me down that path. But I mean, it was, it was an amazing feeling. So it was cool kind of hearing you share a, a, a similar story there. Uh, God, Eric. Eric Nadell is the best, too, isn't he? He is. He's a legend. I love him. Okay, so I, I was going to wait to ask Sorry. you about this. So since we, we asked, how you, you love baseball, and I know you're on a, a 
kind of the musicians and, and baseball uh, email chain. Like this is a, a legitimate love and passion for you. How did that all develop? Um, I, well, I, it's funny. I don't claim to be the kind of historian that some of the guys on this chain are. Like, you know, Mike Mills from REM, um, you know, he, he he can run circles around me when it comes to just sort of knowing the game. And obviously, Eric is part of the, the this, this email group as well. Um, but I just, I've, I've always kind of loved the baseball, the way the game unfolds kind of like a mystery novel. There's something so subtle about it. And there's something that's just, uh, you really have to invest yourself in it because you can't be, you can't be half, um, paying attention to it because, um, you'll miss everything because the beautiful stuff is the little stuff. And I, and I kind of love, um, even though the history of the Rangers is so fraught, you know, um, I still kind of love that who we are sort of as a franchise. Um, and I, it, yes, it would be a lot better um, if, if we had, you know, some World Series wins under our belt. But I just, I kind of love, uh, you know, just this long, treacherous, underdog feeling of being a Rangers fan. And um, and it's funny because we talk about Eric Nadell, and it's such it's so easy to love a franchise when that's the voice of the franchise. And so growing up, that was definitely uh, something I listened to a lot. You know, um, was was just his voice calling games and um, dropping into the middle of a game and feeling so quickly like you're there because he makes it so easy. Um, I'm excited for the new ballpark. I am. Uh, so sad about the way the timing has worked out in terms of obviously the season. Um, and I hope Woody, uh, you know, gets, I hope he really gets a, a good fair shake um, as manager. He gets to keep doing it for a while because I just, there couldn't be a nicer guy. I've gotten to be friends with him. Um, and he's just such a cool dude and really genuine and positive and you hear him talk about the game, and it's like it's everything you'd ever want out of a manager. So, I don't know. Knock wood. I hope we get to see some baseball soon. He's a he's a pure person who I think genuinely cares about people and the growth of people. And it just so happens that in his profession, that's maybe more focused on their growth as a baseball player. But I think in any line of work, just with his disposition, he would have that sort of an effect. He'd want he would make you want to be a better fill in the blank, whatever it might be. He just kind of has that way about him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you want. I mean, uh, it seems almost like now that the role of manager, you would know way better than me has sort of evolved. And it's, and now there's so much of so much, so much of the decision-making is dictated by, you know, the, the gurus in some booth somewhere where the manager really does need to be a human being and focus on the human element because you know, a lot of the other stuff's been taken out of his hand. Would you say that's right? Yeah, I, I yeah, I think uh, it's definitely way more so now than than in the past, for sure. Cool. So you you played a show near Markholtz Lake uh, back in the day after I think it was after a game, right? And Eric actually told me he's like, you got to ask Red about this show. Uh, so <laughs> here I am asking Red about this show. What what? I mean, it must have been neat for you as a Rangers fan and a baseball fan to get to do this. But, but you know, Eric said as far as, uh, you know, the, the post-game concerts that 
you know we've had, and, and I've certainly I, I remember the ones maybe over the last uh, handful of years. But he said that there hasn't been one like that one. Uh, and so I'm just from your perspective, what do you remember about it? Oh man, I wish I could go back and look at the box score because <laughs> for me the experience was was weird. There was there was good things and bad things. The bad thing was that the Rangers had been trailing. And so when we had to go out and, and plug in and get ready for our show was maybe top of the eighth, bottom of the eighth. Well, in the ninth inning, and we can hear all of this from the, you know, across the parking lot. Um, we had a big rally, came back to win. It was like the most exciting ninth inning of all time. And the Rangers win. And um, so that the missing that, on a night when we had like great seats and we were being treated like Kings and, and we had like, it was such a great baseball experience before we had to go to work. And then while I'm at work, like the coolest part of the whole thing happens and I miss it. But <laughs> the, the great part of that was the crowd that was filing out of, of uh, the game were so happy and so excited and so pumped up that it made the show just, and it was hot and sweaty and it was beautiful. It was a great night. I mean, it was that's one of my favorite gigs because, you know, growing up in Texas, you know, it's just that's such a part of, you know, our 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 collective experience as residents of the Metroplex, and to get to go, you know, be a part of it and be a part of the team and sing the anthem and it's just uh, it's really cool. It's a real honor and it, you know, there's some things that validate. For well, you know, for like my mom or my my brother, or, you know, there's pe- people in my family. E- e- external validation is cool. So for them to see me get to do something like that is cool. But there's every once in a while, like I feel internally validated, which I know I'm not supposed to chase that. But you know, standing there on stage um, and knowing that, like I'm I'm a part of for that night. I'm a part of the Rangers organization and presentation. And um, and especially when it's that like much of a triumphant feeling, that that feels good. That feels like okay, I'm on the, I'm on the right path. You also went to go play a concert in Cuba, I think. Uh, what was that experience like? That was an Eric Nadel special. He's a yeah, he's a, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a big. Um, visitor to Cuba and has been for decades. And, um, you know, I think he originally went over there kind of to, to check out the baseball and fell in love with the culture and the people. And so a few years ago, um, during the previous administration, when um, the restrictions were being loosened with regards to travel, um, and they've since been sort of re-tightened. Um, but it was, uh, it was, incredibly moving to get to go visit this country. And um, my wife came to, and we brought a group of 40 super fans. And, uh, and so that was a little weird. I had to spend a lot of time in close proximity to super fans, which is fine, but it's, <laughs> you know, you, you can't just roll down to breakfast in your pajamas and not talk to anybody. You got to kind of be on. You're on at but, all um, times. Yeah. But Eric had really put together such a great trip, and we did, you know, I had to play a couple of shows, or I, I got to play a couple of shows, but we did so much that was just, you know, um, you know, meeting Cuban people, and I got to meet some really famous artists and some famous musicians, and um, and to hear the stories of life in, in Cuba, I just had no idea how hard it has been, um, you know, for people growing up there. There's this one kid named Orlando who was in his 20s, and 
spoke incredibly good English, and he had taught himself English by listening to Eminem records. And um, and he told me the stories about growing up and how you know the government would give his mom a hot dog and a handful of rice, and that's what she was supposed to feed her family with for the whole day. So that was a day's rations, and you know just to hear somebody that's you know he's younger than me, but somebody you know like a young person who seems like happy and well adjusted, and to hear him say the phrase the sentence, uh, "I don't think I ever ate a dog," you know, like that's oh my god, it breaks my heart just even remembering it. Just like people shouldn't have to live like that. So uh, I look forward to a day when. A lot of it is obviously the Castro family and the, the Cuban government, and a lot of it's been the American government. So I look forward to a day when, when that's when their island is not so impoverished and so difficult to grow up in. Uh, all right, I want to ask you, and and I fully agree. Uh, and and Eric, I know is an ardent supporter of Cuba, and and one day I hope to join him on a an excursion there. Uh, you know, just and as you mentioned, the baseball is amazing, but the the culture is is more eye opening. And I know, so my family's South African, and you know, I've spent some time in South Africa in some of the you know like District Nine and in some of these places where it's like. They live in cardboard boxes, and it's you have conversations. You walk around the neighborhood, and you see these kids. They're smiling ear to ear, playing with a, a makeshift ball of some kind, and it's just that's what they know, and and they're they're so happy. Doesn't mean it's it's right. Doesn't mean that you know it, it should be you know what the the standard is by any means. But it is amazing to to you know here I am. I worry about gosh, you know I gotta. My wife wants me to to screw her license plate in, and I'm. I'm so terrible with tools and stuff. And, you know, that's like a concern right now is like figuring this out, which is a basic thing. And then you think of the concerns that other people have uh, and, and the way they just go about living their life. I'm sure that was eye opening for you as well. You know, you, you mentioned Orlando and, and the rations and stuff. It's just it's crazy with what little they have, how they still at times are able to have, you know, so much fun. And I had no idea my my sixteen year old son right now is dating a girl whose father is uh, South African and oh. she goes back and forth and has dual citizenship. And yeah, the stories are terrifying. I had no idea that it was still as messed up as it is. Like yeah. Johannesburg sounds like just a place you don't want to go. Don't want to go at all. Yeah, and that's yeah. where my that that's where all my my family is. Uh, mm. And uh, you know, Cape Town. It's weird because you go to Cape Town and it's beautiful and. Uh, you know, it's it's certainly not perfect, but it's it's a far cry from Johannesburg. And then you go to Johannesburg, and it's like it's night and day. I mean, it's it's absolutely crazy. Uh, mm. All right, a few a few questions on the music side, Rhett. I'm curious. You know, in a band, you don't necessarily have a a, a head coach and a general manager. I, I guess you have. Um, well, I guess you do have a manager, perhaps. Uh, and maybe people within the band who take on more leadership than others. I'm just curious, how do you view that dynamic and, and maybe your role as a leader within a band, a, you know, a group of, of a handful of folks? Well, it's funny because my bandmates are all older than me. And like I said, Murray was my mentor um, going into you know, my adulthood. And, uh, and so I've always had to contend with being the kid of the group. And so in a lot of ways, you know, there, there have been times where I felt like, oh, these guys are running roughshod over me. They're not letting me make decisions. I'm the guy that's bringing in 90% of the songs and they're bossing me around. And so 
that forced me in a lot of ways to, um, to learn how to exercise diplomacy and to learn how to be um, the kind of leader that doesn't just, you know, get to, to um, walk in and, and take charge without having to earn it. Like I really have kind of had to earn it. And um, uh, they do now defer to me on a number of things, which is new. <laughs> and um, I mean, and the fact that we're 27 years into our band and I'm, and I'm just sort of figuring out how to, make it all work is, is, is testament to just how hard it is. I think the trick is um, figuring out who's good at what and handing that responsibility to them. Our drummer, Philip, has always been good at uh, watching over the money. You know, in, in the earliest days, that manifested itself in his being the one member of the band that had a credit card we could use. Um, uh, <laughs> and, and so to this day, he's somebody that really... Um, you know, go, goes over the contracts and goes over the money. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I used to try and be the tour manager and we figured out early on that I'm already bossing them around on stage and getting all of the credit. And so for me to then tell them what time to wake up and yell at them when they're late to the lobby, that's <laughs> not going to work. So, you know, it's, it's just all about being patient. It's what's well, like any kind of a marriage or any kind of a brother, you know, having a sibling, you, you just have to understand that of course you're going to get in fights and, and get on each other's nerves and just, you got to be okay with that and let it go and know that, know that tomorrow morning when you wake up, you can talk about it and, and just move forward. And 27 years later, that's what's worked for us. All right. Last thing, Rhett, how do you balance the band and your solo work, because I know you know it seems like recently maybe more more on the solo side, uh, but just in general, how do you balance the two and, and kind of keep everything kind of squared away? Well, I never did it until like oh, uh, two thousand one was when I started uh, making solo records, and the problem was the band uh, they're very ornery and they're very opinionated, and really that's not a problem. That's the nature of the band. It's part of why. You know, we're a unit and, and we sound like we do and we have a distinctive sound. The problem is that I wind up with all these extra songs that they don't want and I don't know what to do with otherwise. So I started making the solo records and, you know, that usually is a harbinger of bad things for a band where, uh, oh, here we go. Now the, now the singer's making solo records. The band's on the, on the way to breaking up. But that hasn't been the case with us and you know that we i've been making these solo records alternating between band records and solo records for you know two decades now almost and so it's it's weird but if i didn't get to do it i would begrudge them their orneriness and their um you know their them telling me no would would rankle me a lot more than it does now so the fact that i get to go back and forth and and they're all like I said, they all are a little older. They all married women with good jobs. Um, so they're able to stay home and be kind of stay-at-home dads. And so they don't mind when I make a solo record or I go out and do solo gigs. They give me the space to do that. And honestly, that's probably one of the major reasons we've been able to survive as long as we have as a band because, uh, you know, I, I have an outlet. And by the time I finish a solo record and touring behind a solo record, I really miss those guys. Boy, I really miss them right now. You know, I'm, we've uh, all of our shows have been canceled for the foreseeable future, and it's just 
the weirdest thing. I've never gone three months without leaving my house. I've never gone three months without playing with my band. And I don't know how long it's going to be before we get to do it again. God, knock wood.